Okay, hello Oberlin. Welcome back to another episode of A Critical Review. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the financialization of higher education. I'm making an episode on this topic because even though this wasn't one controversial event, it's more of just kind of an egregious trend that's happening in the United States where a lot of schools, including Oberlin, are being run like businesses instead of universities. Additionally, there seems to be a lot of confusion regarding Oberlin's finances um, and the discrepancy between a billion dollar endowment and severe cost-cutting measures that we've seen in recent years. So we're going to explore that today. I was fortunate enough to interview Kelly Grotke about this topic. Kelly, thank you again for talking to me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, I'm going to do the most awkward audio transition right now and just hop right into the interview. But keep listening and I hope you enjoy. Okay. Okay, cool. So joining me today is Kelly Grotke. Thank you for being here. She is, of course, she is an Oberlin alumni who graduated in 89. And in November, she came to campus to give a really wonderful talk uh, about Oberlin's endowment and the misalignment between a booming endowment and severe cost-cutting measures happening. I believe that talk is available on the Slack website. That's how I watched it. But Kelly, would you like to tell us more about yourself and what you're up to now? Sure, sure. Basically, I graduated from Oberlin, studied philosophy there, got a PhD in history from Cornell, have held academic positions at the University of Helsinki Law School and also at Cornell but I've also worked in finance for a number of years and specifically in securities valuation. So I had been looking at the situation with endowments ever since the 2008 financial crash. When I had first noticed that a lot of endowments were heavily invested in alternatives, which at the time exposed them to various kinds of risks. So when the Oberlin situation developed, which was the announcement that they were going to cut these union workers or outsource them. I got in touch with another bunch of alums all who came out of the labor movement and we kind of formed the 1833 Just Transition Fund. So they brought their labor experience together with my experience in finance. And that's when we wrote a letter to the administration proposing to provide an independent valuation of the endowment, which was even at the time rather large. I think at the time it was like 870 million or so. Now it's reportedly over a billion. Um, But there seemed to be something wrong because that's a, a large amount of money, right? And it was also heavily invested in what are called alternative investments, which are basically There are a number of different types, but the commonality among them is they're not really regulated very much. Um, I'm just, so I've watched the Slack talk and I'm familiar with the terms like alternatives and financialization, but you define them really well. And I was wondering if you could just define those, like what alternatives are and what some examples might be. 
Sure. There's um, alternatives, like they're kind of united in not being heavily regulated. There was, in theory, like the logic was if sophisticated investors are making decisions about what they want to do with their own money and what kind of risks they want to take, then they're free to do that. That was what was going on. And you would have a big range of options, which is what we see now. Within So alternatives include things like private equity, um, hedge funds, real estate investment trusts. But now with the growth of institutional investors and they have lots of money, they park it in alternatives often because the idea was that they're managed by these really skillful people and they have less risk and a greater reward. So that's something that institutional investors like. They're like, oh, great, less risk. But you know, we're going to get more yield. And so that was kind of the sales pitch. Um, but what we have now is a situation in which institutions like Oberlin, who took the, who followed that model of what has been called the so-called Yale model of investing, which means heavy allocations into alternatives. And David Swenson originated it. He was very successful. And he told people not to imitate him, you know, but they did. And so Oberlin is essentially following the yield model with about 67% of its endowment allocated into alternatives. And the problem there, like, and it's just- That's, yeah, that, that's a lot. Yeah. I, I've, I knew that number, but just <laughs> again, it's, it always strikes me. Um, it's kind of shocking. I mean, but, it, but it's very common too. And one of the reasons for our, its commonality is that, you know, people are making a lot of money off of this, right? Yeah. So my concern about, you know, I, I was, I had always followed Oberlin's endowment and I'd seen that it had followed the Yale model for many years. I think I, I, I remember going back through the tax documents and I think it, it was an early um, participant in that model. Uh, maybe not as high as the allocations are now, but yeah, the ratios have expanded a lot. And I think this goes along with the process of financialization, which is an increasing control of financial entities upon other kinds of institutions like higher education. So the institutions become beholden and, and very certain like tied up with financial interests that don't necessarily align with the interests of say providing a very good and rigorous and you know lovely undergraduate education which was what i experienced at Oberlin. you know yeah and alternatives are very expensive because the fees are often not disclosed the in private equity and that's usually something in the contract and the contracts are often secret so you know I, I, so scary. Yeah, um, Harry Truman said long ago that secrecy and democracy are not compatible. And I think you're, you're seeing this, a version of it, and, um, but we've asked instead the trustees and administrations to um, provide it to us because they should know that one of the reasons that possibly Oberlin is in the condition it is, is that it was hemorrhaging cash. I think what is that condition? Because on one hand, if you look at the website and if you look at the braggish language about like, you know, Oberlin's endowment, it really contradicts 
and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting like a little emotional, like, because this, this topic upsets me, like it really contradicts just these severe cost cutting measures. It upsets me too. It's I mean, confusing to me, like as an alum, is it like, what, what's your take on the picture? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. It's, it, it confuses me. I mean, not to be entirely cynical, but like the endowment going up, you know, Oberlin got an upgrade in its credit rating, which is, you know, make, it allows it to borrow at low rates. It's standings in the various rating schemes like US News and World Report will probably like go up a little bit. They'll probably draw more customers, but that's the point. I mean, you know, it's, it's viewing students as a customer, right? And, and I, I mean, I, I didn't think of myself that way when I was there, you know, um, what it's become with the Yale model is a fashion and one that people are very attached no. to uh. and can't really see beyond, or you could say it's become an ideology that this is the way if we are, um, you know, an ambitious, you know, established, institution of higher education, this is the way we behave. If I could bring up a quote from um, an article you wrote in the American Prospect, which I think sums up financialization and what's happening really nicely. You said administrations and trustees increasingly run their institutions as private top-down corporations that manufacture education and student experiences. That's... (coughs) That's, sorry. that's one thing. Sorry, no, no, no. That that's one thing I wanted to ask. Like, you know, there's all this secrecy and lack of trans- transparency and financialization. But like, has it always been that way? Like, has Oberlin always been run with these priorities in mind, which is making money and maximizing efficiency? I mean, you know, there's there's a sense in, in be- your experience as a student and alumni. I think as as a student, I wasn't really aware of that aspect of things it came up sometimes but like at the time Oberlin was still really pretty faculty governed and regarded by some as difficult but you know it does make sense to have good fiscal management right what doesn't make as much sense is to have that management shaped by decisions that nobody is answerable for you know, because that's a loss for the students, that's a loss for the faculty. This is where I see like one of the key challenges. And I, I think Oberlin with its with its progressive history could actually be a powerful place to challenge some of the things that have become routinized, like the dog eat dog capitalist world. No, you know? I, what you're saying really resonates with me. I'm sure everyone who's gone to Oberlin, this place has deeply impacted who they are. And it's done that for me in really great ways. It sucks seeing all these really harsh cost-cutting measures and what I think are misplaced priorities on making money. Because like part of me wants Oberlin to do well financially and continue to provide like you know, like I want them to do well. I don't want them to go under because if they lose money, then like everyone suffers. But it just absolutely I don't like yeah. how they're doing it and so I, I don't know like how does this make you feel I mean all of us kind of banded together because 
we thought that there were possibilities for better ways forward. Yeah. But we couldn't get the information we needed to assess the real condition of the college, regardless though. But I also think that the pull of these, the secrecy with the investments, I'm not even sure that some of the people in the investment committee know what's going on with them. Of course not. That's the point. Yeah. This is, this is the whole corrosive effect of secrecy. And, and believe me, I mean, oh, the bullshit that can be talked in finance. It can be nearly impenetrable. I know that before I started working in it, I would like turn on the, you know, the finance news or whatever, MSNBC or whatever it was. And you'd listen to like, blah, 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 you know, it was going up, down, up, down, up, down or whatever. And you're just like, I have no idea what this means. And so a lot of things happen in the name of cutting costs. And at a certain point, you're not just cutting costs. You're, you're cutting. Like welfare and well-being. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're, you're cutting people's lives. I mean, the things that make life kind of tolerable and less than dog eat dog thing, right? Because that's complete ideological trash. I mean, it feels like that. I totally get that because I feel that way too sometimes. And it really, it depresses me. The, the, the life is much more beautiful. I, I learned at Oberlin, you know, how to read certain works of literature that made me feel less alone in the world. Now that doesn't matter shit to private equity. <laughs> that experience has no monetary value. Yeah. Right? Like the thing yeah. about being an Oberlin student was like, like I was a product or something like we were talking about before. Um, and it was like, I think it was the introduction that, that um, Ambar has to do in front of each of the alumni magazines. And it was like, like one Oberlin student going out to do what they do best, which is change the world for the better. And I'm like, how can you do this? Like what kind of split exists that you can say that? And I'm, I think that's great. Okay. I think Oberlin students should do that. And I think, but it's, it's not just a brand. So one. I mean, I, well, well I, I think it is a brand, but they're not yeah. doing the things to uphold the brand. I mean, personally speaking, I've gotten a lot out of my Oberlin experience and the way I see it is unfortunately in the United States, like it is a capitalist doggy dog world. And, you know, you have to try to make money to survive and do well and if Oberlin were to resist that then they would fail and it seems like they're trying to embrace that and go along with it but in doing so they contradict their values and that's frustrating for people involved in this community. That's really well put. I mean if you were to like point to the central kind of paradox about what's going on there I think that pretty much captures it. Um, and this makes it challenging because, I mean, it's more than just Oberlin, right? The yeah. pressure is real. Um, but if any place could figure out how to thread that needle, I would think it would be Oberlin. I don't um, know. Um. Yeah, and, and it does need to be, a lot of these things need to be challenged. Um, it's, you're actually seeing some of this at the SEC level. That's pretty high up. And, and the SEC, okay, they could have done something years ago. 
but they're seeing some of the same problems that, that we saw with the Oberlin Endowment. And, you know, I think Oberlin provides a really important case study for, you know, the loss of community control over the circumstances of their lives. You know, the college community, but the broader community too. And that's an important story. And it's one that can get easily kind of like, well, we have to do this. It's all necessity, right? But it's not. There are other choices. And again, Oberlin has a lot of money. I suspect it got into some deep trouble around the time of the financial crisis. And I believe that, you know, that there were a bunch of like trustees rotate, right? And the decisions that like group A makes who were around during the financial crisis are, they're not the same group as the ones now, but that creates kind of a problem because you can kick the can as far as responsibility is concerned. So it's the other factor of the secrecy and the lack of accountability is that they're trustees. They're supposed to look after the mission of the college and, and sustain it. They're also heavily you know, involved in a model of an, an investment strategy that is probably by all accounts since 2006 at least, so before the crisis, has not made any more than less expensive investments. Really? Yeah, the research, I've been in touch with one of the lead researchers in, in private equity. And his research shows that since 2006, there's been no real um, advantage to being in these complicated alternative investments. Why do you think the the contracts are so hard to get out of. Okay, so the well, the way I see it, and this is wrong, but again, I am a 22-year-old English major. So alternative, <laughs> high risk, high reward, and it, yeah, high risk, high reward. And um, you hire these Wall Street um, people or brokers who understand the risk and you pay them lots of money to navigate the risk and get the reward. Um, but with these contracts, basically the way I see it, it's kind of like buying lottery tickets, like very risky, but a lot of reward. And um, it's, it's like, if, if you buy them over and over, over the course of 10 years, you might win. You probably will at one point. I think the ads for lottery tickets are, are much worse, like one in 758,100 million. <laughs> so the odds are a little bit better in finance, but it is like gambling, uh. right? And, and the problem with it is, you know, if people who run, like they're, they're, if people who run these funds, and I, I think, again, there are a lot of smart people who want to do good. I, I didn't like, get born into finance. And I learned it kind of as an outsider, which has its advantages because you're interested in different things. You know, I'm, I'm not particularly interested in making loads of money, but I am interested in understanding what this arrangement of things does to our society. Yeah. You know, so I'm not really a good fit for finance. Um, when you think about it, because if you want to be successful, you just follow or, or lead in different directions and you make money. And 
it's also because it's so abstract. And this is one of the dangers that I think dangers to democracy under certain conditions because it's so abstract. Well, right? I, I think that goes back to what you were saying about, you said you would be, even though you've studied finance and you know about this, like you said you would be a bad person to work in finance because I think like you don't have that priority of making money above all else. No, and I do not. And it seems that Oberlin is adopting that. And again, capitalist dog eat dog world, that's sometimes what you have to do to be successful financially. Like you have to put on the Mitt Romney hat at times, um, <laughs> which is unfortunate, but like as a student, obviously I want Oberlin to do well and be okay and continue to be a place for students to attend in the future. But I would almost, rather see them go down following their beliefs instead of just mutating into something else like an unfortunate truth of capitalism where do you stand on that yeah it's Oberlin is kind of veering in that direction and I get it you have to run an institution responsibly and all of that but you can't do that if you know your institution is like a group of people that you're answerable to which ideally the trustees should be. Um, if you're keeping a lot of what is wrong with the condition of the college secret. Yeah. Now there are institutions that are about as big as Oberlin with a third of the endowment that are functioning okay. Now decisions are always being made in finance and the, the thing that, that finance people will do to cover over responsibility for the decisions is just assert this reality of financial value and you know the mathiness of it, <laughs> which scares a lot of people away. You know? Yeah. Um, but you have faculty who have done studies showing that the yield of the endowment is, you know, not all that. So who made those decisions? To whom are they responsible? You know, these kinds of questions don't even get asked. There's an assumption of competence. And again, they're the smart people. I'm not saying that, you know, but who else has a voice in this, in the financial condition of the college? Maybe there are better ways to do things. You know, maybe Oberlin should still be a place where there are, there's room for other values than the financial. I mean, it's always been a bit of an elitist institution, right? I, I had an interview once and, and my person interviewing me was saying, well, I mean, Oberlin's still a very elite institution. <laughs> and, and, I, and I got kind of stuck at that point. And I'm like, you know, it is. But maybe it would be the opening for a better way of thinking about higher education. Like thinking of it as a challenge to solve rather than as a reality you have to live with. Like a challenge to solve would be like, how do we manage this with the interests of a community at heart? And I think if... No, I, I completely agree with you. And if anything, if that experiment were to be done, because like I, I talked about, you know, how a, a lot of what Oberlin is doing and what you've written about, it's not unique. It's what a lot of private schools in America are doing. And it's the trend that's happening in higher education in general. But I think if that experimental approach, that shift in focus away from 
financialization, like towards the betterment of the community, if that was to be done anywhere, it should be done at Oberlin, you know? Ideally, yeah. I mean, it's it's been really distressing to see Oberlin just become any other place, potentially. Yeah. I don't think that's true of its students. I mean, in my experience when I was there, it was just like, Oberlin students are as great as they ever were. Uh, not that I met a whole lot, but I had at least a little bit of a cross-section. <laughs> and I felt, I, I just felt at home, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the soul of the place for me and the faculty and yeah. the staff, right? Which I think ties into bigger political struggles. You know, like you're saying that Oberlin is an example of some of these, these patterns and, and, and things that are kind of affecting society at large. It's, it's also an opportunity to develop like a response to that. Because I think for me, and, and maybe this will resonate with, with, with other people, but it's, it's been a power of a period of real sense of disempowerment, an erosion of the sense of citizen, an erosion of a sense of control over the direction of one's life. And again, I've lived in places where it's not so much a dog eat dog place, like Finland, you know, you can just have a good life being an ordinary person. Um, and a lot of us are ordinary people, and maybe that's, you know, good enough that's worth fighting for. Fighting to have free time, fighting to have better medical care. I'm appalled by what has happened at Oberlin there. And, and, and I, I want to ask you about your experience as an alumni, because, well, because I feel like as a graduating student, I'm in a bit of a unique position because I love Oberlin dearly. I've noticed for me personally, a lot of my, the issues or the things I take issue with at Oberlin are a lot of the things I take issue with about the United States in general. And I guess given your background, do you think Oberlin could exist? Like, how do I say this? Like Oberlin could have the priorities it advertises within the society that we live in. That's sorry, that was an unfair question. That, no, that was for my I, curiosity. I mean, it's interesting because um, I think it goes back to our earlier discussion about brand and things like that. Yeah. Right. I mean, my immediate gut response was kind of like, no. Yeah. Same. I mean, <laughs> It's like what we're talking about here is a, a project for the future. I mean, the damage being done to our senses of meaning is, is often pretty profound. And, you know, it, especially, I think, if you're trying to do something which these days I think is quite ambitious, which is basically to, you know, secure a reasonable quality of life for as many people as you can, as fairly as you can, you know? There's a project for the future than there was when I was at Oberlin. The same at Cornell, you know, I mean, the rate of administrative pay has gone up very, very high. I think, okay, so fine. It's not like people don't deserve to get paid well for doing good work, but the, the extent of the disparity creates an enormously distorting um, kind of force, you know, like, it's surely there are people who want to run universities and, and colleges just because they want to create vital, healthy institutions that in turn make people very loyal to them. That, you know, 
that show them things, that teach them things that, you know, that they don't want to just rotate through various institutions until they get to a, like a $3 million a year university president position or whatever it is. I mean, who needs that? It's education. I mean, it's, it's become embroiled with high finance and it's become part of the same social circle. And I think that creates very distorting effects too. I think the rest of the research, I'm sorry. No, I, I apologize, it was me. <laughs> I think the word health is really interesting here because financially, I, again, this is just me, but it seems like Oberlin is very financially healthy right now, but the health of our community is not doing great. And I feel like that really should be Oberlin's top priority, providing that quality of life to as many people in the community as possible. But it just, it doesn't seem that way. There's an edge of hypocrisy that has crept in, like in my alumni magazines and all of that. I mean, it's great to see what people I graduated with are doing and the things that are going on in the college, which is still very complex and wonderful and people putting on plays. And I love it. <laughs> but what I don't love is what feels like an increasing the sales pitchy orientation as if being progressive is a brand. And, and I get that identity politics, this is a big deal. And our, our political culture in the United States is just a mess, you know, but it's not just a brand. I mean, it, it's a way of, it's a way of life. Yeah. You know, it's wanting a society that is not dog eat dog. It's wanting, it's wanting to, you know, learn about the experiences of others. So, you know, we can be like more inclusive. If you do things like, you know, create extra burdens because of a healthcare system, you're actually moving things in the other way. You're making people feel more stressed, yeah. right? You're adding pressure to their lives. You're participating in that. And I get it. Oberlin's not responsible for the screwed up state of medical care in this country. But here's an opportunity. It's a big institution. Why not try to bond with other institutions that are like it to negotiate in this screwed up health care system we have a better rate for its community? I mean, it, it's like, I think one person can change the world. If that initiative is born anywhere, I feel like it should be out of Oberlin. Yeah, I mean, but and it's hard, like, because... There's the thinking about a better world. There's the pressures that come to bear on us all now in an increasingly brutal society, money-wise. Um, that makes it hard to focus. I think that's partially intentional. You know, I mean, I mean, I think there's a really serious way in which European and American culture have never gotten over uh, colonialism and slavery. Yeah. Never gotten over the appeal of, of taking another person's value in yeah. making it into your own, taking it by force, reducing people to things. I mean, Oberlin professors, when I was there, I don't, I don't know, you know, we didn't talk about their finances really, but they, it seemed a decent life. You know, yeah. it was a modest life, right? I mean, you didn't have at that time the superstar professor factory 
And I've known some of these people, right? And they're smart and everything. But that the fact that you would start adding that element of value that people would feel that they were entitled to half a million a year because they were they had X profile and other people had to, you're a top professor, you know, at a top university, you can make a lot of money. I mean, so the, the yeah, and, and then you get the ridiculous things like bringing people from ex administrations in. And that's been going on for ages. But, you know, the, the, there's also the hidden stuff. And one of the things I'm like trying to do in different ways is, is bring, a, bring about a way of talking about finance that is not so abstruse, that allows relationships of power, which they are, to become more visible. Yeah. You know? And, you know, if Oberlin is basically using those mechanisms of power, Wow. Why would it, you know, I mean, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, but to, to avoid accountability, then they've become part of the problem. Yeah, yeah, no, I think Oberlin is definitely leveraging that. And that's part of the sadness for me. And I, I'm not saying that there wasn't a bit of that when I was there. I mean, I'm, you know, I was, I was less aware of things. Um, less I had studied it less I had thought about it less and so I imagine because of that it was probably less consequent um but I think you know there were aspects of it there but yeah. but there's there's got to be a better way yeah I mean it, it it makes me very sad you know to see progressivism reduced to a brand that you know for those who can afford it wow <laughs> I think that's really, really well put and reflects just the unfortunate reality of where we are now. Is there anything else you would like to say just about your experience with this? We've covered so much. I mean, I, I will say that I've had a great time working with the alums. Um, it, it's, it's been lovely. You know, like it, it feels good. It feels like we're Oberlin students <laughs> like you know we're oriented towards a common project and common projects are still possible you know so that's been a, a, a really lovely aspect of it as has you know working with Slack a bit um, going back to Oberlin and and knowing that there are people that are like really directly affected by these things who are also looking for ways to change you know and looking for ways to collaborate in doing that because it has it has to be that not a theoretical undertaking it's not like somebody's going to write a book and everything's going to change you know I mean, it's just you know it's I mean, not I'm making a podcast I mean that's not going to do anything but like maybe yeah. I mean I don't know um, we're also having a conversation which I've enjoyed immensely you oh, know thank it's, you I feel very at home so and and You've been very gracious and, and I love the questions. They've been some really, really smart, challenging questions that push me in directions that I hadn't really developed so much. There's sort of, you know, so thank you. It's been a real pleasure. No, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. And this interview provided just a lot of insight. So thank you. Okay.